Hello, once again, welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. Travis Decker coming from the United States Air Force Academy. And today I'll be talking to Dr. Harris Sloan coming from the Medical University of South Carolina. He's an extremely talented young mind and surgeon advancing sports medicine research in the fields of both shoulder and knee reconstructive procedures. He currently serves as an associate professor and the program director for the residency program and enjoys mentoring young and bright surgeons. I recently had the privilege of being on the traveling fellowship trail with Dr. Sloan and grew to appreciate his insight and out of the box thinking as he tackles complex and dynamic procedures as it pertains to common sports orthopedic pathologies. Today, I'll be focusing on an article within arthroscopy published in March of 2019 entitled, Preoperative Shoulder Injections Are Associated with Increased Risk of Revision Rotator Cuff Repair. Harris, welcome to the podcast as I'm excited and eager to learn and apply the lessons you've taken away from this study to my own practice, as I truly do believe that this has been a practice-changing article for many. Harris, congratulations on all of your early career achievements and contributions, and once again, welcome to the podcast. Travis, thanks a lot for having me. All right, Harris, let's begin. Uh, You began the article by giving a great review of corticosteroid injection use to aid in the treatment of multiple ailments. Can you give a review for us on what historical recommendations have been in practice, both in your own and from your own observation in the treatment of rotator cuff tears specifically? I think that our thought and approach to treating uh, rotator cuff tears, especially with steroid medication and and really a lot of other orthopedic ailments with steroid medication has certainly evolved over time. It's fairly common for people with partial thickness cuff tears or even full thickness cuff tears to have a trial of non-operative treatment. And historically, that usually has included a steroid injection. I think people are certainly more cognizant of some of the deleterious effects of steroid medication and are a little bit more judicious in their use of steroid medicines um, especially in patients who are, who may be surgical candidates. I, I think that's very well stated. I've seen a change across even from when we began training in residency to where I think we were uh, pretty open to the use of consistent corticosteroid use to try and control symptoms. And uh, as we saw those uh, eventually wear out, people would still have these drastic uh, tears that uh, were uh, uncompensated, couldn't get back and had a, a lot of pain. And then uh, led to secondary uh, changes to the rotator cuff itself. And I think now most of us know that the, there's detrimental effects of corticosteroids throughout the body, specifically the deleterious effects to the cartilage and to the tendon architecture. And so really not to get uh, too far into the weeds on this, but can you tell us some of the basic science behind what is actually happening to the tissues that we're treating? And then when we use the steroids and why this could lead to an increased risk of rotator cuff retear incidence? First of all, I think that, you know, we rely on the inflammatory response for healing after rotator cuff repair. And we know that cortisone decreases the inflammatory response. So intuitively, it just kind of makes sense that these are probably bad in the perioperative period. We also know that steroids cause fibroblast apoptosis. They disrupt the collagen bundles. And there's been lots of studies that have shown that steroid injections prior to cuff repair just result in poorer quality tissue overall. Furthermore, we know that uh, local anesthetics such as lidocaine, for example, have been shown to have cytotoxic, cytotoxic effects as well, specifically to rotator cuff tenocytes. They can induce apoptosis, uh, delay collagen organization, and certainly there's uh, similar uh, untoward effects to chondrocytes as well. So I think we're all a lot more aware of some of these problems, but you know how that translates into the clinical outcome 
uh, I think we're just still learning. Well, I, I always find it fascinating to actually learn a little bit of the basic science behind the interventions, especially the non-operative interventions that we're doing. I think that we continue to drive research along biologic lines, but corticosteroids are still one of the most common used non-operative intervention across orthopedics, regardless of, of ailment type. And I think that goes with knee arthritis as we come see it, but especially within rotator cuff pathology. So I think your help in, in what this article brings out is what we're actually doing to the at, at the cellular level, which can have an impact on outcomes, which ultimately I think all of us are concerned about. So let's get down to the basics of your article now. And can you tell us what led you to ask the question that you did and the methods behind how you included the patients in your study? And in addition, can you hit on some of the limitations that could be inherent in this type of search and inclusion criteria? Sure. So I think we as orthopedic surgeons have this love-hate relationship with inflammation. Uh, we, we sometimes want to suppress inflammation because we know it causes pain. Uh, sometimes we want to induce inflammation because we know it promotes healing. <clears throat> sometimes we use anti-inflammatories on non-inflammatory processes. So it's just a sort of very interesting topic in general to me. When people started getting excited about the use of biologics to augment certain orthopedic interventions, such as rotator cuff repair, this is in general around inducing a healing response, really an inflammatory response in some capacity. And so it seemed counterintuitive to me that we would be injecting anti-inflammatory medications really into the operative site, then at the time of surgery, going in and trying to induce an inflammatory response that may or may not still be blunted because of the preoperative steroid intervention. And so we wanted to look, we know that it can have uh, deleterious effects on tissue quality. And so we wanted to look, you know, what are the outcomes? Does it, does it in, lead to an increased risk of rotator cuff failure, specifically revision rotator cuff repair? And this is not an easy thing to study. And uh, as a result, we looked at, uh, at a big database to evaluate whether or not there was an increased risk of revision rotator cuff repair in the three years following surgical intervention. So obviously, that is one of the biggest limitations of this study is that it is a large database study, and we're unable to really get granular in some of the details. We actually can't confirm what percentage of these injections were actually steroid injections. So it is possible that a lot of the coded injections based, from, based on the database weren't steroid, although intuitively I think we can all probably agree that the vast majority of the injections given probably were steroid injections. And, you know, I, I, I do think that probably the, just the biggest limitation of this study is the, the database nature of this study. But sometimes, you know, there's a lot of good and bad that can come from big data. Uh, and, and this is one of the areas where it does allow you to sort of take a, at least an initial look at this to see if there might be something there. Harris, I think that's a, you do a great job in reviewing kind of a basic, being able to ask a basic scientific question and the reason behind it. And in addition to that, acknowledging some of the uh, shortcomings of any search strategy and <clears throat> doing your best to kind of find an answer, especially when there's such low numbers of retares and it's hard to be able to pull that data. You have to go to a big database, but understanding where that might be, you might be losing some of the capture and some of the weaknesses of the databases are extremely important. So 
I went through, looked at your results, which of course are interesting. And what I specifically thought was really interesting is, can you really break down the findings in terms of what time points are critical to avoid when giving these perioperative injections? And I also found it really fascinating is why do you think there's a difference between the groupings of zero to three months and then three to six months? So I I had a feeling that you were going to ask that question. Um, So the summary of our article, uh, summary of the results of the article are really that we found that preoperative injection prior to rotator cuff repair between both zero and three and three and six months uh, resulted in an increased risk of revision rotator cuff repair. And I, even in our hypothesis in the article, we hypothesized that the risk would be increased between, uh, you know, within the first three months. Uh, and obviously, we found that that risk carried out uh, all the way up into the six-month mark. I do think it's important, and we note in the discussion of the article, that the vast majority of the injections given in the three- to six-month mark were skewed towards the three-month side. Uh, so, you know, usually be- between, you know, after month three, but before month five. Um, and so I do think that there is uh, likely a time-dependent relationship between injection uh, and surgery. And so just when I was actually able to look at the raw numbers and just sort of see how everything was distributed, um, I, I do think that the three- to six-month mark uh, should still be noted. But again, I do think it probably is more likely it's worse closer uh, when the time is closer between the surgical intervention and the injection. We, you know, after six months, we did not find a significant increased risk of revision rotator cuff repair. Um, the other thing that should be noted is that the confidence interval in that three to six month group was definitely wider than it is uh, between the zero to three months. Still statistically significant, but the confidence interval is a little bit wider. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much stock I put into the injection between three and six months being worse than zero to three, um, you know, even though the results of the article suggest that there's a higher risk, I think that's probably just how the numbers fell out uh, and much more likely to be a time-dependent relationship. Harris, I think that you've taught us a great lesson in just kind of the practical application of the, how we should approach these studies is that there definitely can be a difference in statistics versus that of just practical application when you look and dive into the numbers that it probably is kind of closer to that grouping in that three to four month mark that probably has a more drastic effect, even though the the actual raw number and raw data output may kind of we naturally push it into groupings. I think either way, you've shown that there is a time dependent effect that causes an increased risk of rotator cuff retear, which drives us to change our practice. And so I, I, I find it to, to be a very practical article And in conclusion, at this point, what's your recommendation on the perioperative use of corticosteroids in terms of timing prior to repair? And in addition, what injections, type, and frequency do you feel comfortable with using in the setting of a rotator cuff tear? I think that this is still a bit of a moving target for me. Um, I still use steroid injections uh, fairly frequently. Um, I do try to uh, delay surgical intervention after a steroid injection and at a minimum three months and longer if I can. If I have a patient who I think is more likely than not going to end up in a surgical uh, setting or end up having surgery, then I really will try and avoid the use of steroids. If there's someone who maybe 
is really not a surgical candidate or is something that I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to manage without surgery, then my threshold for using steroid injections is a little lower. But I definitely am very judicious in their use, and I don't frequently do multiple injections. I've definitely also changed how I, uh, what, what injections I use. Uh, I, I try to minimize local anesthetic, so most of my injections now uh, are saline. In addition to the steroid medication, I, I really don't use much local unless I am doing it specifically for a diagnostic tool. And then I used to use a lot of Depamedrol, and I'm using Kenalog. I do think there's some data out there that would suggest that at least from a cytotoxicity standpoint, Kenalog is a little bit more cell-friendly than Depo and some of the other formulations. Uh, sometimes I will also use dexamethasone in a younger patient if I want a shorter-acting steroid effect. Um, but, but again, this is still an area where I'm learning more and more, and you know, I don't know that we really have all the answers. Well, I, I think that on our traveling fellowship, we were chatting earlier about this, but uh, a shout-out to the Biologics Association meeting uh, this year that was associated with the ANA meeting. And that they, they had some great debates where they were talking about cytotoxic effects and the use of local and these uh, uh, world's efforts were going up there and being very open about types of injections they use and why. And everybody thinks, oh, you're just giving a steroid shot. And I think we're really learning that, oh, it's not just a steroid shot and there's different types, there's different makeups. And then additionally, what we're adding to the steroid mix can really have a, a drastic effect on the environment that we're putting it into. And so we need to be thoughtful about that. And uh, I think your article highlights that. I think your article has been great to contribute. Arthroscopy has really put out a lot of articles, I think, to help us in the perioperative management of rotator cuff tears. There's another article, same year, that you published that talked about the number of, uh, of injections used, how it, uh, that, that can lead to increased risk of re-tear greater than two injections. And so I think that arthroscopy has done a great job in kind of helping guide surgeons along a practical path to most effectively and safely treat patients to minimize re-tear and hopefully optimize outcomes. And I really appreciate you taking the time tonight, Harris, and uh, I know you're extremely busy, and it's it was a pleasure having you on the podcast, and uh, uh, even bigger pleasure being able to travel with you on that traveling fellowship. Do you have any parting thoughts on future avenues of research when it comes to non-operative modalities and the use of rotator tears, other types of injections, etc.? I think the future is probably in biologics. Uh, you know, you taught me on the traveling fellowship. You you presented very very compelling data to suggest that there probably is not a clear benefit to some of the biologics we commonly talk about as an adjunctive to rotator cuff uh, repair. Uh, but, but I do think that biologics are likely to be the future, if you will, of how we operatively and non-operatively manage a lot of the things in orthopedics and specifically rotator cuff tear. You know, in addition to PRP, there's a lot of excitement around fat and bursa. Uh, but I do think we have a, a good ways before we can, you know, I think uh, regularly and routinely recommend use of those those products. But but my guess is that over the next few years, uh, we will see a tremendous increase in what we know about those uh, about those adjuvants and when to use them. Well, <clears throat> Dr. Harris Sloan's arthroscopy article published in March of 2019 entitled preoperative shoulder injections are associated with increased risk of revision rotator cuff repair can currently be accessed 
at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. We appreciate all the listeners and all the support of this podcast. We thank you for joining us. Have a great evening. And once again, thank you very much for joining us, Harris. Thanks for having me. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal and are not meant to be treatment recommendations for individual patients.